turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. So Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We hope that your family had a safe and sweet Christmas, even if the holidays were different this year. Whether it's been a time of joy or sorrow, I believe the Lord wants to minister to us through his word to turn our eyes away from ourselves and our circumstances and to him. So Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this season of giving and receiving, I pray that you would teach us. Teach us how to be generous, how to give, as we look to the Lord Jesus who gave himself, gave of himself even to the point of death. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the New Testament opens with the four Gospels, what Jesus said and did, his life, death, and resurrection, his humiliation, and his exaltation to save sinners. The book of Acts picks up the narrative. The church is now commissioned, sent out by Jesus to proclaim what Jesus did. It calls out, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that the biggest problem you and I have isn't COVID-19. It isn't school closures or lockdowns or the injustice we see all around us. The biggest problem is my sin, your sin, against a holy God and the punishment that we deserve. Most people in this world are blissfully unaware and ignorant of how big their sin problem is. It's like the people on the ship Titanic still thinking that it's an unsinkable ship. But once those watertight compartments were scraped open by that iceberg, it was only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time until the the water would flood the ship and the Titanic would sink to the bottom of the ocean. Death is only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time until the day of reckoning, until the day that each one of us will have to settle accounts with God. And on that day, each person will give an account for his life. And he's not going to compare you to the serial killer or to the terrorist. God is going to compare you and me to the standard of his perfect and holy law. It's a great and awesome day, a day of blood, fire, and vapor, where the sun is turned to darkness and moon to blood, a day where creation is stripped down to the bare studs and everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. The biggest problem that you have, that you and I have, is this. What are you going to do with your sin? 
what are you going to do with your sin? You might be listening or watching this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't know what you're going to do with your sin. There's no greater or more important or urgent question for you today. For it is appointed for a man to die once and then face judgment. You might be wondering, what does all that have to do with the book of Acts? What does all that have to do with Acts chapter 4, the passage we just read? Well, the book of Acts is all about the church on fire. The church which has tasted and experienced the greatest solution to the greatest problem. The greatest problem is a sin that separates us from a holy God, a sin that leads to eternal judgment in hell. Then the greatest solution is what God did to reconcile us to himself. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of his people. And if you know that, if you've experienced that, then that changes everything. When you pull up your favorite map app on your phone, you have the ability to zoom in, to get close up to something. You might start out by viewing a country way up high. You can zoom in on a state, a city, a street, or even a particular home. And today we're going to zoom in on one unmistakable reality of a life changed by Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit recreates, he replicates. When the Holy Spirit recreates, he replicates God's heart of generosity. When the Holy Spirit recreates, he replicates God's heart of generosity. I'm going to break down today's sermon into three parts. Number one, explanation for generosity. Number two, expectation for generosity. And number three, exhortation for generosity. So explanation expectation, and then exhortation. Explanation for generosity, expectation for generosity, and exhortation for generosity. So number one, explanation. How do you explain what's going on in the book of Acts? We see in this passage that the, the church is of one heart and one soul. They're not divided by politics and preferences. No one said that anything belonged to themselves. They had everything in common. People sold lands, houses, and fields to provide for the needs of others in the church. They were treating one another as family. This is the Spirit of God at work. This is the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So how do you explain what these crazy Christians were doing? They were selling their property, giving away these resources to help those in need. It made no sense to the outside world. But this generosity that you see in Acts chapter 4, it was a testimony to God's power, the power of the gospel, the power of the resurrection. Nothing else could explain this strange behavior. These crazy Christians selling their stuff and giving away the proceeds. And this is one piece of evidence that we're not of this world. As one scholar points out, friendship in the Greco-Roman mold often involved reciprocity between those who were social equals. In other words, I'm going to be your friend if you'll be my friend. And I'll take care of you because you'll take care of me. It was transactional. 
But New Testament love transcends the world's definition of friendship. It says to a fellow brother or sister in Christ, I'll love you. I'll sacrifice for you. I'll meet your needs because we both belong to King Jesus. We've both been saved by his blood. And the world is watching. Are we really following Jesus when he says things like, don't store up treasures on earth, store up treasures in heaven? Are we really following Jesus when he says, love one another? And we see Barnabas as an example of this in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas means son of encouragement. It means that through his life and his words, he spurred on others to do the same. He could basically say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Barnabas is an important leader in the early church, and he's first introduced in the book of Acts right here. We know he's a Levite from Cyprus and a wealthy landowner. As one scholar points out, Barnabas embodies the biblical model of the servant benefactor. Servant benefactor. Meaning he uses his wealth, his resources, to serve others, to benefit others. And this act of generosity costs Barnabas something. This field that Barnabas sold would decrease his personal wealth on earth. He would no longer have this field or this money for his personal use. But what Barnabas did was also a public act. He let his light shine before others so that they would see his good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Kids for school, for the kids out there, you often have to do something called compare and contrast. You look at different things and you look at similarities and differences between two or more things. One of my kids had to do an assignment, a compare and contrast assignment, where they looked at rural, suburban, and urban communities. He had to come up with a chart. He had to list out different ways that they were similar and different. Similar, it's interesting to see in Scripture how God's Word compares and contrasts what Barnabas did with what Ananias and Sapphira did. Later on in this chapter, we, read, we find out that Ananias and Sapphira did something similar, a public act of generosity. But here's the difference, and this difference is key. They gave for the wrong reasons. Jesus warns us against this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And Ananias and Sapphira did act generously, but they did it for the wrong reasons, in order to be seen by others for public recognition. And in light of that counterfeit, the real deal, what Barnabas did, it shines all the more brightly. It was a genuine act of love and generosity. I thank God for the Barnabases among us today. For us, I immediately think of, a, of another generous servant benefactor, who has offered not only to provide our church a bridge loan to purchase a church building, but also a significant monetary gift. As pastors, we're aware of an individual who has given generously to another family, anonymously, in order to cover two months of rent. And kids, you're never too young to start thinking of others and to start 
thinking about how God might use you in generosity. When my boys were given some birthday money, we encouraged them to give some of it away. They decided to donate some of their money to purchase Bibles through the ministry Voice of the Martyrs. And they were providing Bibles for the persecuted church. So we see in Acts chapter 4 something radical, something revolutionary, something that the world couldn't really make sense of. And the only explanation is the Spirit of God, the power of God at work. But this explanation for generosity needs to be understood in the context of expectation. Expectation. This was actually God's plan all along. This brings me to my second point, expectation. Expectation. In the Old Testament, God expected his people to be an example, to be a light to the nations through how they treated one another. Those with more were expected to share with those with less. And as a side note, God's people, they did own personal property. They did own, they did own private property. Christians broke bread in their own homes. So we see Christianity isn't communism, but it also isn't pure capitalism. So while the Bible affirms the ownership of private property, it's not an absolute ownership. For instance, in Leviticus 19, during the harvest season, God commanded his people in this way. Don't reap your field right up to the very edge. Don't gather the gleanings after your harvest. Don't strip your vineyard bare. You shall leave some of your food, some of your harvest for the poor and foreigner. I am the Lord your God. That means the poor and the foreigner had a right to some of the wealth of Israel's economy. Israel was forbidden to maximize personal profit. In Proverbs 19.17, we read this. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. There was an expectation, an expectation that the people of God would be generous like their generous God. You remember, God rescued out of Egypt his people Israel and graciously gave them the promised land. So the expectation was that Israel would also be generous. And they would be so generous that poverty would be eliminated. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. But as you've heard me say before, the history of Israel is a history of failure. Israel failed to care for the poor. They failed to be alike to the nations. The rich oppressed the poor. They chose to maximize their profits, and they minimized their love for their neighbor. The people were so wicked and so oppressive that God sent them into exile as judgment for their wickedness. So then what happened to this expectation? What happened to this expectation that there would be no poor among you? Israel's failure raised a number of questions. Was this hope that there would be no poor people a utopian pipe dream like the government's failed attempt to eliminate poverty? Was it an empty promise like a mirage in a desert? No. 
This awesome reality, this hope held out in Deuteronomy chapter 15 is fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 34 once again. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Where man failed, God succeeds. In Acts 4, God does through the church what man could only dream of doing, which is the elimination of poverty. Verse 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them. Not one. Not a single needy person in the church. And we see this generosity, this poverty-eliminating generosity all throughout Acts and the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the day, the day the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. In Acts chapter 6, the church distributes food to needy widows. In Acts chapter 11, we see local churches get together to meet the needs of the worldwide church. The church finds out that there's going to be a great famine all over the world, so the disciples determined to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Paul and Barnabas. You see there Barnabas showing up once again. When the Holy Spirit recreates, he replicates God's heart of generosity. When the Holy Spirit recreates, he replicates. So we've seen the explanation for generosity and the expectation for generosity. The rest of this time, we're going to be looking at the exhortation for generosity. The Bible contains exhortation, encouragement for generosity. Generosity is an important way that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it is an important way for us to enter through the narrow gate. This exhortation for generosity, I'm going to break down into four things to remember, beginning with the letter G. Four things to remember. Number one, remember God's generosity. Number two, remember giving is more blessed than receiving. Number three, remember that a giant goose egg is all that you really own. Number four, remember the great and final day. So number one, for us to be a generous church, we need to remember God's generosity. We need to remember God's generosity. It's God's generosity that's paramount, that should be paramount in our hearts and our minds. So how frequently do we think about, meditate upon what God has done for us, how God gave and forgave? God gave and forgave. God, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. While we were yet sinners, God forgave us in Christ. You remember Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God... 
God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need to remember God's generosity that Jesus humbled himself. He gave himself drop by drop, gasp by gasp until he had nothing left to give. Until his very own life was snuffed out under the wrath of God's judgment as he died on the cross for our sins. In the words of Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The President of the United States will often host leaders of other nations in the state dining room in the White House. The state dining room was most recently renovated by Michelle Obama. Renovation included installing a 30-foot by 40-foot wool rug and ecru silk drapes. I had no idea what ecru was, so I had to look it up. And apparently it refers to the color of unbleached linen. So we have these ecru drapes that are accented in stripes of peacock blue, like the Kailua blue waters of Hawaii, which is President Obama's home state. So this is a state dining room. Amazing. Beautiful fit for important guests. What if the President of the United States set aside his tuxedo and tie and starts cooking the food? He brings it out, serves it to the guests, and afterwards collects the dishes and starts washing them in the kitchen. That would be shocking. That'd be weird. That'd be out of the ordinary. The guests in the state dining room would probably tell the President, well, don't you have staff to do this? Why are you cooking? and serving, and cleaning. Why are you doing this? In an infinitely greater way, Jesus set aside, not a tuxedo and tie, he set aside his divine power and privileges when he became a man. The story of Christmas is that story of God the Son coming down to us to serve us. That's how generous our God is. and We have to remember that. So remember our generous God, what he did for us. So number two, for us to be a generous church, we need to remember that giving is more blessed than receiving. Giving is more blessed than receiving. This is directly connected to our call to remember God's generosity. Jesus himself taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. Blessings and resources that are hoarded become pools of stagnant water. Like stagnant water, our hearts can become stagnant and breed sickness. For water to remain fresh and life-giving, it has to flow. Resources have to flow. The irony is that when you hold on to resources, it suffocates the life out of you. The irony of all idolatry is that the more you look to your idols to bring life and joy the more they actually suck life and joy out of you. Peyton March once said, there is a wonderful law of nature that the three things we crave most in life, happiness, freedom, and peace of mind, are always obtained by giving them to someone else. Are always obtained by giving them to someone else. That's why Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake 
will save it. So church, let us remember God's generosity. Let us remember that giving is more blessed than receiving. And number three, for us to be a generous church, let's remember that a giant goose egg is all that you really own. All that you own, everything, all your earthly possessions adds up to one giant goose egg. Zero, nada, nothing, because God owns it all. Verse 32 again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one in the church claimed absolute ownership over their possessions. No one claimed ownership because they knew God is a supreme owner. He owns it all. He made it all. He owns it all. That includes our bank accounts, your retirement accounts, your house, your car, your children, clothes, jewelry, accessories, electronics, anything and everything you own. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you realize that you don't even own your own life. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 make this abundantly clear. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, you, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Church, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus died for us, so he is our Lord and Master. And when you remember that everything you own adds up to one giant goose egg, even your own life, that frees you to be generous. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, teaches us that disciples of Christ aren't owners, but money managers. We're not owners, but money managers. We're stewards. God has entrusted to us the stewardship of a certain amount of resources, certain amount of time and money and gifts and talents and abilities. Again, when you know it's not yours, it frees you to be generous. We know that, well, this isn't my money that I'm giving away. It's God's money. It's God's money that I tie to the church. It's God's money that I give to those who are in need. It's God's money that's being used to fund missions work. And Jesus calls us, each one of us, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, he calls you to deny yourself, take up the cross and follow him, to lay down not just money or lands, but everything, even your own life. The question is, is there something, anything that you wouldn't give up for Jesus? Anything that you wouldn't give up for God? This is the mark of a true disciple. We know that we don't own it. We don't own anything. It all belongs to God. But sometimes it's not money we struggle with. Sometimes it's time. This is an area of growth, area of growth for me. When I get busy, I can be very stingy with my time. I've got my to-do list, my tasks, goals, and I don't like being interrupted. The call to generosity is the call to be interruptible. My life, my time, is not my own. Number four, and finally, for us to be a generous church, we need to remember that great and final day. We need to remember that great and final day. We all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, second 
Corinthians 5.10. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple, it's not a judgment for sin on that day, but an assessment for rewards. Not a judgment for sin, but an assessment for rewards. That means your work on earth, what you did with what God has entrusted to you, has eternal impact, eternal impact for good or eternal loss. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Church, it's possible to escape as through fire, like running out of a burning building with only the clothes on your back. That's what happened to Lot in Genesis chapter 19. He escapes Sodom and Gomorrah as God rains down fire and sulfur, but he doesn't walk away with much. I want to be clear, we're not saved by our works, but our works do matter. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. Your deeds, what you do here on earth, your stewardship, your management of your God-given resources will follow you into eternity. And some will show up into heaven with eternal loss, with only the clothes on their back. Oscar Schindler spent his fortune during World War II saving the lives of 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. He bribed Nazi officials, and he purchased supplies to keep his Jewish workers safe in his factories. At the end of the movie, if you've seen the movie, there's a powerful scene as he looks around at the people he rescued. It's a scene of joy, but also a scene where he expresses personal regret. He looks at his watch, and he regrets having held on to it. He looks at his car, and he regrets that he didn't so sell it. He regrets holding on to some of these personal items, items he could have sold and used the money to save even more lives. When you meet Jesus on that great and final day, will you have any regrets for what you held on to? Will you have wished that you managed God's resources differently? Barnabas sold a field and converted that into eternal riches. And church, you and I, we have the opportunity now for faithful stewardship that will maximize eternal impact. In his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, Randy Alcorn writes, My God-given resources, including money and possessions, have immense potential. These are the levers positioned on the fulcrum of this life by which I can move the mountains of eternity. Let me read that part again. They, meaning 
resources, money, and possessions. They are the levers positioned on the fulcrum of this life by which I can move the mountains of eternity. What we do in this life is of eternal importance. You and I will never have another chance to move the hand of God through prayer, care for the sick, give a cup of water to the thirsty, comfort the dying, invest money to help the helpless, rescue the unborn, further God's kingdom, open our homes, and share our food and clothes with the poor and needy. So church, let's remember God's generosity. Let's remember that giving is more blessed than receiving. Let's remember that a giant goose egg is all that we really own. And finally, let's remember the great and final day. When the Holy Spirit recreates, he replicates. He replicates God's heart of generosity. This is a mark of the true church, of true believers, true followers of Jesus Christ, that that work of replication has happened. In church family, God wants us to take regular, ongoing inventory of all the resources he's entrusted to us. We need to be asking the question time and time again, how does the Lord want me to open up my wallet? How does the Lord want me to open up my calendar? How does the Lord want me to be a blessing to others? We're so grateful for how many of you actively and intentionally pursue generosity and hospitality. I think of families like the Gomes, the Hughes, the Heidegrins, and others. Families who regularly open their homes and lives to other people. And faithfulness will look different for different families. If you need a place to start, start by inviting one family. One family, a family of a different ethnicity, a different background, different political bent. Have them into your home. You may need to wait until we get past COVID, but, but have a plan. Have a goal for the upcoming year. Start small, but church, do start. And church, I want to send you out with these words from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7, as we wrap up our time here. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen.